everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers sitting around, drinking and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's gallery of hosts include Chaz and Karen Brenchley, comments from John Schmidt, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 64, Interview with Catherine Carr. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. Catherine, you sometimes go by Kit. May I call you Kit for the interview? Yes, I think most people do. Why not? Excellent. Sometimes Kit is actually the Kit is the lead of Karen's and my writing group called The Flying Cars, conveniently enough, because we're funny, and the author of the Devery series. And I thought because Devery was such an international bestseller, let's talk a little bit about Devery. Well, let's talk a lot about Devery. It's exciting. It's a really good series. <laughs> I first ran into Devery, I think I got the very first year that you came out was 86, right? Right, yes. I, that was where I first got my copy of, I think it was Dagger's Spell was the very first one, That's which immediately right. ran out, and Got Dark Spell was the first book I bought in college. So wow. you, you started me down a delicious path there. <laughs> where did it all come from for you, Devery? Well, that is a very good question. Um, when I'd always wanted to write, and I'd always loved fantasy and science fiction, and that's when life intervened to a large extent. But I guess I was about 38 when somebody gave me a copy of a role-playing game, which reminded me of how much I liked this stuff. And I had, of course, read Tolkien when the American, the Pirate Ace edition came out back in the 60s. And so and I started writing gaming articles <clears throat> for Dragon Magazine and did some work for KSCM and TSR both. But... At one point, I read a really horrible, awful story in Dragon Magazine, a fantasy story that was so bad. I gave it to my husband, Howard, who read it and started laughing and said, I said, well, I could write something better than this. And he said, well, of course you could. <laughs> Why don't you? And that was the fatal remark. So I started writing what I thought was a short story. Uh, yes, the short story is not in volume one. No, the short story ended up, well, something, I should say the same structure and certain of the characters in the short story ended up as the last part of volume six of the actual published series. Because once I started writing, my first question is, well, who are these people? Okay, they're Celts. I could tell that by the way they spoke. They never said yes and no, you know, these words like some and whatnot. Uh, and so, okay, so they're Celts. What kind of Celts? Well, they probably came from Gaul to escape the Romans to this fantasy world. Ah, oh, that'll do. Well, everything I said that'll do, of course, it immediately expanded. In the first two years, um, I published nothing yet, of course, because I was writing chunks of narrative, not, not notes, actual big pieces of books, what eventually became part of books with much revision, of course. Um, and I don't really know where it came from. It just came pouring out. All my life, I've been very interested in Celtic culture, and uh, ancient history and the Romans and whatnot. I was a classics major at Stanford for a while. Uh, and, I, and I kept on doing reading and research all, you know, once I left college on my own. And so I imagine all that stuff had been sort of fermenting in there like booze. And yeah. once I started writing, I found that I had all this material at my access. And so, you know, I wrote, well, okay, first it was going to be a short story. Well, that was silly. How about a novella? No, that's something too. A novel? No. A trilogy? A trilogy? Ha! How about four? <laughs> it got longer and longer and longer. And, of course, I had trouble What was publishing. the moment that you realized that it wasn't a short story, though? Was there a... Probably, well, it was probably when I looked at one of the very minor character who had appeared sort of out of nowhere, as characters do, 
and realized, oh, that's Nevin, and this whole thing is actually about him and his redemption, and it's going to involve reincarnation in many past lives. At that point, checks short, yeah. short, short story, you know what I mean? Yes, yes. You were doomed at that point. Yes. In a way, I almost feel like Nevin wrote part of this. I mean, he kept feeding me the material anyway, you know, some the astral plane or somewhere like that. I don't yeah. mean, it was all very strange to me, let me tell you. I can see him doing that. I can see him um, jumping right in. Besides, don't you speak Welsh as well? Well, I don't speak it very well. I speak a little Welsh and I can read a little more. But um, my family were typical immigrants in that. You know, when they spoke, my grandmother and her sister spoke Welsh in the home in front of us kids until we were four and it was time to start thinking about school. At that point, it was English only because oh. we had to have perfect English, you know. And in a way, she was right. Um now that I know fairly well, I have a, a friend who is bilingual in a sense, both English and Tongan, and he was never really allowed to learn either language fully because he, they kept shipping him back and forth from Tonga to California. And now I can see that, you know, sometimes maybe you're better off really only having one because then you get to know it very well rather than having to spend your time shifting. You know, my, that was my grandmother's theory. I know she said almost as much to me once. Well, we didn't let you speak it because you needed to be fully English speaker. And I could see your point now. It's sad, though. I wish I had both languages. <laughs> now, you, as you, as you went through and you read, and you, d- I know that you've done research on anthropology as well as history. Did yeah. you just take notes? What was your process, or was it just reading and learning and thinking, and then writing on the story? What was your creative process for getting that first big over the hill to understand what your world was fully? Um, well, I did take notes. Once I, once I realized that I was reading and thinking for a project, then I began to take notes and organize my, you know, thinking better. I have upstairs in my office, I have a whole drawer full of notes, which probably I'll never look at again. But the very act of taking the notes, of course, fixes it in your mind. That's what I was going to say. Um, did you find, once you'd, you'd read, the, read the works and made the notes, did you find you, you needed at any point to go back to the notes, or was it just the making of the notes that fixed it in your mind sufficiently that it was there now? Um, it was the making of the notes. was just yeah. fine, except for the, for the uh, language notes, because the language in, in uh, Devery is not Welsh. It's Neo-Gaulish. I mean, I decided too many people were misunderstanding Welsh history, <laughs> and the, the calls had somehow dropped out. <laughs> and so uh, what I've done is used the old British, not modern Welsh, but the old British as a something of a model. And then what, what's, what remains of uh, Gaulish. There is a wonderful book by Joshua Watma, a uh, Harvard scholar back in the, in the 60s and 70s, called Dialects of Ancient Gaul. This, is, this became my Bible. I practically memorized <laughs> this huge, thick tome. I have a copy. And then uh, also there is a a, a guide to Romano-British place names that had a lot of Celtic roots in it by somebody who has the actual name of A.L.F. Rivet. So I always call him Alf Rivet, even though, of course, that's not quite his name. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, those notes, I took lots of notes on that so that I had names for places and for people that were authentically very old Celtic names, not modern ones. And some some of the names that are very old are also modern, like Rodri and, and Harris, both, of course, are modern names in Welsh all the time. Some people have been very surprised to learn that. But uh, I spelled Rodri slightly different and Harris in a very old way. So I figured it would do, because those are the names that characters demanded to have. You, you so, know characters are like Chess. 
Devery goes forward in time. Did you keep, I mean, over, over the generations and generations as he's been reborn, how did you just parallel um, modern the modern world or did you kind of go your own direction when you were building your world there? Well, both, really. Um, the Dagger Spell starts in, what was it, 1040 or 1060 or something like that. Okay, and so the, the books go both back and forward. Finally, in the very last volume, you get to see the Gauls arrive in what's going to be their new homeland, you know, in like 75, <laughs> 80. But, uh, but uh, yeah, some of it, certainly the, them leaving Rome after the defeat of uh, Julius Windex, the last Gaulish hope for some sort of fair treatment from Rome, is, is a historical thing. And, but, of course, they immediately meet both elves and the horsekin, who are, you know, the horsekin are my own creation, uh, who are never in our planet, so it diverges there. One parallel is the civil wars in Devery, the time of troubles, I borrowed the Irish name. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, the, and the civil wars are based, actually, oddly enough, on the wars in Brittany, when the, the stupid dukes in their, the honor code fought among themselves to see who was going to be chief duke of all Brittany, and they weakened themselves so much that the French could then just march in and take over the country. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's nobody to just march in and take over the country in uh, Devry, so that, you know, that didn't happen there. Well, they didn't have a Ben Franklin to say, if we do not hang together, we will certainly hang yes. separately. Well, that's why the Romans conquered Gaul in the first place, with the... Uh, Vercingetorix, the uh, Gaulish leader who tried to unify the tribes and too many old feuds and rivalries and this and that. And everyone left it too late to unify and the sub Caesar won. It was really that simple. It's always been a problem among Celtic culture. The the men in their damn honor code, as my grandmother would have called it, because she was not very fond of that kind of attitude. (laughs) So would you have anything to say to that, Chaz, being a Celtic? uh, uh. (laughs) I'm I'm maintaining a... Actually, no, I'm, I'm agreeing with Kit completely. Um, divide and rule is, yeah, it's the classic um, approach, and it is why there are three or four Celtic kingdoms around England, all of whom are dominated by the bloody English. Yeah, because they could never get it together. Uh, <laughs> what was, it? Oh, was it up around Strathclyde now? There was a Celtic kingdom where, again, it was the same thing. The leader was trying to unify everybody. Irian, I think his name was. Yes. And <laughs> no, no, no. Some, the, finally, he was assassinated by one of his own. So the chieftains who were theoretically following him because they had argued over who owned a shed, a cow shed. These things are important to us Celts, you know. Well, cow sheds are, although my grandmother always insisted we are not cow shed Welsh. <laughs> 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 That's the equivalent of lace curtain Irish, as if you're not cow shed Welsh. So. <laughs> I love it. Well, because we'll you know, be looking both at those up and posting them in the liner notes to tell people what lace curtain Irish means. So. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and also, say somebody is born in a cow shed is a real... Um, insult in certain parts of the United Kingdom, of the not-so-United Kingdom. So in America, we, is it the same as you were raised in a barn, only yeah. a little bit more? Yeah. It's really just about the same level. You know? Yeah, I mean, raised in a barn is just about your manners. Born in a cowshed is about your class as well as your manners. Yeah. The, well, I'd the, like the to our purpose. Yeah. Well, we don't have that. We don't have the idea of class quite as strict as we do in the United States. It's more, it's more 
um, you because you can you can I forget the famous name of the guy who brought him up by himself by this bootstraps or whatever. It's just more financial, yeah. I think, which is also tied to race and that kind of thing, as opposed to um, you're born into one spot and you're always that spot, which I the impression I get from the United Kingdom. Yeah, um, my uncle Sid was uh, from was was English. Uh, my grandfather when, was English too, one of my grandfathers. But at any rate, he started very poor as a as a boy working in a stationery shop, and he ended up owning the shop because he was so sharp. And then he went on to found uh, British Electric, um, a, a firm that helped develop the radar bomb site in World War II. And wow. he was quite wealthy, but he always felt that he was somehow inferior because he had been born poor. And in America, he would have been lionized. Yeah. You know, he would have been a hero of capitalism. And over there was, oh, well, even though, I mean, he started working in the shop. And I, just, I never could quite understand that. He was a real nice guy, too, unlike American capitalists. <laughs> so you, I mean, for those that who haven't rushed out and, uh, you know, buying Darany Devery, because I'm telling them to, you wrote these over 34 years. Yeah. Did Part your style change at all? Or did you? Oh, yeah, I got better. <laughs> well, no, no, I, I know that, but it's like... Art just makes perfect decisions. As you're moving through time, do you ever look back at, at the original stuff and say, would you want to change it, or is it just, does it fit for an earlier time? And, like, the latest one was Sword of Fire. That just came out this year, right? Yeah, that just came... Yeah, there's... <clears throat> I had a chance to revise the first two because of uh, the currents of publishing, Originally, when I sold the, um, the first two books, Dagger and Dark Spell, they were hardback to Doubleday. In those days, you sold books first in hardback, and then the, the hardback publisher sold the rights to the paperback production to another company. In my case, they sold them first to uh, Bain, or no, Del Rey, excuse me. Which is funny, because Del Rey had turned down the books originally, but then he bought the paperback rights. <laughs> But anyway, so those first two books were under a very different kind of contract. From then on, it was the hard, soft contract that they still have today. Okay. So anyway, when the, the but they only sold Del Rey a five-year license on the first two books, mm -hmm. not a permanent. You know, they were they didn't get the rights permanently. So when that five years expired, I was given the chance to revise some of the early mistakes. Now, Dagger Spell, I just is pretty much the same. I cleaned up some of the language because I learned how to write better. And, uh, added a couple of scenes to make things clearer. But uh, Dark Spell, I changed a great deal because much to my shock, there are people out there who think that if somebody is a child molester, he must be gay. And of course, this isn't the case at all with the evil Alistair, who is a pedophile. So I gave him a girl. To I changed one of the boys into a girl so he could molest both species. <laughs> That's and maybe very people, good of you. That's <laughs> <laughs> very thoughtful. Yeah, it's very thoughtful. But anyway, at least <laughs> I hope it made it clearer for readers who have read the revised version, which is all that's available now. Anyway, there's not a sheep in twenty miles that doesn't run scared. Yeah, just about this guy. Well, he was he was actually very sad, and he ends up redeemed too. Because you know, too many of the fantasies at the time. One reason I started writing. Uh, Devery, or actually it's really pronounced Devery, but most people say Devery and that's fine. It's imaginary. You can say whatever you'd like. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I started writing it for two reasons. One is that so many of the fantasies at the time only had women who were barmaids. No, I don't Yeah, that. that is true. And so I changed that part. And then 
there was also the idea that if something was evil, it was irrevocably evil and always opposed to the light. It was very much Tolkien's Catholic background, of course. And so I, I thought, well, no, you know, really, if we're going to talk about magic, and of course the Deverian, ma Deverian magic is based on what a lot of people actually did believe and practice in the ancient world, but redemption has always been a part of it. And even the evil people eventually, like I think it's in book 14 that Laos finally gets to be redeemed after several miserable incarnations. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is eventually. Well, 14 it, books were. We do kind of clean up history a lot. I mean, in the original Mallory, wasn't it that King Arthur, whom everybody loves and lionizes, the great hero, was so afraid of the prophecies of his son that he went out and slayed all the babies born in May? Yeah. Um, and that's a wholesale child, child slaughter that just didn't make it into Camelot. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, well, Arthur is quite a, a problematic figure. First of all, he was probably never really a king. He was probably, well, what in Deveria is called the Cadritic, uh, the war leader, because he's described in Latin as the Dux Bellorum, the leader yeah. of armies. This is yeah. not the king. This is, you know... Um, it's a duke somebody, of war. Yeah, the marshal, the field marshal, basically. <laughs> But he became a king as later as to bolster up the Edward the kingship when Edward uh, conquered Wales, and you know he wanted to identify with Arthur so that the Welsh would stop fighting him. Not that they did, of course, but that's <laughs> the yeah. point. But uh, as far as cleaning up the history, actually, of course, for one thing, there is a thing about putting the king on the throne, but that's not really. It's sort of an anti-Arthur because it's obvious Nevin is the one who's picked this kid as the best of a bad lot, really. And there's no, you know, any prophecies about, oh, the true-born king is propaganda. And it probably was in the original, too, when you come right down to it. So I suppose in a way that's cleaning up, it's making it obvious anyway, that rather than being the true-born king, Marin, as his name is in uh, Deveri, is um, basically he's been chosen by the priests and put forward as the best candidate. And then Nevin uses magic to get him to stop the bloodshed. That's really all he's interested in at that point is to stop the common people from suffering. And what that is cleaning up history because it certainly never bothered the kings in the real life. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. So somewhere in the middle there, you took a break and you wrote the Polar City Blues. And I love that. Yeah. That's is that a, it's really a duology, the Polar City Blues and Polar City Nightmare. Nightmare yeah, um, I never intended to write another Polar City Blues, but Katie Daniel wanted to do one, so I said sure. I ended up getting my name on it because, well, it was my world, I suppose, and I gave her some feedback. But just as she was getting ready to do the revisions and, you know, get it, we'd solved it, but she had to do the revisions and they run. Uh, her husband had a horrible major heart attack. And so I stepped in and did a lot of the, re all the rewriting, in fact, in the editing and saw it through the process. But um, Polar City Blues, of course, is all mine. I just needed a break after writing, I guess it was three debris then, by then, Bristling Wood, I finished as well. So you've written some other novels, though, too, right? Oh, yeah. Um, well, one reason is that I've had a lot of trouble. With the, when the series got to be very long, okay, <laughs> uh, I, by about book 10, I guess it was, uh, the editor I had then, Anne Grell, who's a very, very good editor, uh, She, I just turned in book nine, and she really liked it, and she wanted to get a contract for book 10 because she knew there would be more and she liked the way the series was going. Well, the Bantam had just gotten a new publisher, I mean, a new head person 
a woman who had been in charge of the failed Bantam romance line, Silhouette. And they brought her over to science fiction because it's all the same, you know. Yeah, yeah. Jean was gone. And so, and so she could not, she disliked the series intensely and refused, was going to refuse to let Anne buy book 10 and 11. And well, it was right in the middle of one of the stories, you know, the, the plot lines. So Anne fought, bless her soul, and she managed to get permission. Okay, we'll buy book 10 and we'll put that out like we always have, but book 11 is only going to be a paperback. Um, that's the fire dragon. And then she wasn't going to let her buy anymore. So fine. Okay. I was really annoyed because of course the series wasn't really done. There had to be those last books, but that's why it stopped there for several years. Fortunately, and bless Sheila Gilbert at Daw heard about that and she made an offer. And if it wasn't for Daw, I never would have probably been able to finish the series. Very, very few publishers will pick up a series that has been broken in the middle like that. I was really lucky. Wow, and something yeah. for young authors to keep in mind is that sometimes through no fault of your own, you run into someone who just doesn't like your stuff and they don't want to buy it anymore. And so there you jolly well are. <laughs> well, and I've heard so many good things about Sheila Gilbert doing that kind of thing. Oh, um, yeah. She's, she's also an excellent editor. Whatever, she's, whatever she says, change, I change. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. You know, unlike some of the ones I've had to work with over the years, but <laughs> so, I was going to say oh, I always are... loved your Nola O'Grady because I found them at about this time. You rode the early wave of urban supernatural witchcraft sorcery that we started psychic, to see. Yes, yeah, psychic, psychic powers. Psychic um, powers. Yeah, and well, uh, I was going to say I, I've always been in favor of more more Nola coming out because it was early; they were believable. Uh, I liked it because later authors had the characters started having a mostly the book was about their sex life and you actually kept it about the plot and the magic, which was awesome. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's funny about that, isn't it? Um, yeah, although I've certainly gotten in trouble with some of the shippers as they called themselves because there wasn't, you know, oh at one point she's unfaithful. Oh, I'll never read another book by you again. Well, too bad. Really? <laughs> but Seems actually I would like to write more Nola too. Um Part of the problem is that they weren't really doing very well financially. Right. Because they weren't what people expected. You know, people like, well, like if you compare them, say, to um, what's his name, Jim Butcher, you know, that the, there's many things going on. A lot of people say, oh, there's all that stuff about her family in them, you know. And other people I love like that. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, of course I liked it too. I mean, that was to me made one of the things that made it believable is that, you know, this whole family is the seventh sons of seventh sons and her daughters in this case too. So anyway, but uh, so Dahl didn't really want anymore, but that's with Kindle like it someday. But the real problem, of course, was Howard's illness, my husband's illness. When he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, everything had to pretty much stop. I'm really kind of surprised that I managed to finish the fourth NOLA, even though it's not as good as I wanted it to be. And then I, of course, wrote those two Room Master books too. But yes. the sicker he got, the less I could do. Finishing mm -hmm. Sword of Fire took me like three years. Mm. You know, his long decline. We guys know about that. So, about you had stand a couple standalones out there too. Resurrection was it just ah. a story that popped up and needed to be told, or did you ever have in mind for a series for Resurrection and Freeze no, well, Frames? No, Resurrection or? is part of Freeze Frames. Ah, okay. Okay. What it is is I always had had in mind um, a series of stories about women in San Francisco showing, you know, things change in science fiction, you know, over time. And uh, that, so that, that's really what it's part of. I had written, um, I had the whole thing sort of sketched in. Resurrection was published separately because of Bantam at that time under the different publisher. 
uh, wanted to try the novella market because the whole thing was, oh, well, modern readers don't have time to read whole novels. And so let's put out these short ones and charge too much for them. And oh, funny, they're not doing very well. <laughs> so, so that came out from Banham's ill-fated project. Uh, but the rest of the book then, I, you know, which was I, um, my agents took to tour and they bought it for, for freeze frames. And so Resurrection is slightly different at the beginning in the freeze frames because you know, it had to be fit into the main story again. You had to go back to that. But it's part of that longer book. Well, one of the stories for freeze frame, the one where the main character is uh, goes to England and or is either... I oh, can't yes. remember. Asylum, she, yes. Asylum, yes. That one, that one is one of my favorites of your stories, and it was chosen in it for a best of the year anthology and that kind of thing too, yeah. wasn't it? It was indeed, and it came out first in Interzone. Yeah, that was that was very very haunting, and and I could see it happening, which was yes. Unfortunately, it is happening, isn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. You, you were predictive. Next time, pr- predict happy fluffy bunnies. Okay. Yes. Well, if I had ever, if I ever get around to writing things that happen after freeze frames, well, it's not really going to be happy either. It'd probably be worse. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> the way things are now, it's hard for me to be happy fluffy bunnies. Yeah, but. Um, now, we've talked to some other folks with how they got together in setting up anthologies. And how did you get started with anthologies? Like, I know that you wrote Weird Tales from Shakespeare because oh, I, I love that yeah. you collected fan fiction. That was just, that, that does all kinds of service to all sorts of folks out there. Yeah. Well, yeah, this um, Weird Tales from Shakespeare was, uh, came to me just as a, a title at first because of the Charles Lamb, you know, Tales from Shakespeare for Children. And I'd always hoped they would have a cover that would could have been, you know, like period for Charles Lamb, but with, you know, some magical thing or something in it. But no, they went to what they did. But um, that, yeah, it just, I don't know, it just occurred to me. And so anyway, Brian Aldous wanted to do a story too. And I thought, well, sure, if he's going to do a story, let's get other people together, shall we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, if Brian Aldous wants to, yeah. Yeah, and uh, M. John Harrison too. Mike Harrison wanted to do one, so fine. Oh. Yeah, that was born when... Um, at a world fantasy convention, I think the one in Arizona. I was just going to say, that sounds like the sort of thing that has hatched the world fantasy bar. Right. And then because of that, um, Daw wanted two more. So they uh, they bought the Enchanted Forests one. And then HarperCollins also wanted uh, the uh, uh, wanted an anthology for me, but they didn't want the weird tales from Shakespeare because they're, Jean Johnson, I think she was right, she said the British children are so crammed full of Shakespeare that they probably wouldn't want to buy anything with that on the cover. <laughs> I can see her point, you know, really. It's like the national hero. So, anyway, so they bought instead sorceries, which came out in this country under the silly title of The Shimmering Door. I do not know why. Sorceries. Okay, that is silly. Hmm? That is silly. Yeah, there was some... That was when, I don't know, it was supposed to be more literary or something like that. And none of the stories are literary. They're fantasy, you know. It's what I do. I don't want anyone to buy literary fiction from me. <laughs> but that was, uh, well, I shouldn't mention names, but in private someday I will tell you about that. Okay. <coughs> FDF water. So there's, there's a lot of us that have, have benefited by your experience in, in talking about what is sellable and and just writing in the craft. If somebody was just starting out now, what would you advise if they want, said, "Well, I wanted to write a 
a 20-volume novel set of this amazing world that I've built in my head, where, where would you advise that they would start with that sort of thing? I think I'd probably tell them don't. <laughs> <laughs> it has been so difficult to get this stuff out of my head onto, you know, into books and then have them published and then have them sold. Because it's so interesting about the very, is that people who like it, love it. You know, they, they want to know me. They want a silver dagger jacket. They want the whole bit. The people who don't like it think it's the worst stuff they've ever read. And who would read this crap? <laughs> I, I so, think that falls under the you can't please everybody yes, theory. Yes, it definitely does. But, you know, some books, oh, like Snare, for instance, that I also wrote a science fiction book. Some people really like it. And some people think, oh, it was okay, you know. So that's the more usual reaction. There may be one or two people who really dislike a book you've written. This is something young writers should keep in mind. But normally, um, you know, it's sort of lukewarm, rather. Oh, I wouldn't buy more of that. That kind of comment. Not, oh, my God, why did you write it that way? It's difficult. It's hard to read. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff I've gotten over the years. And, but the appreciate that, that sort of makes it sound like that not only does a young writer then have to deal with the, I'm sorry, I don't want to publish your story or represent you, but there's also the, when somebody says yes, somewhere there's going to be somebody who writes something critical bad about it. Yeah. And the best thing to do is ignore it, unless you feel they have a valid point. You know, if somebody says, for instance, well, I liked this book, except that one character just did not strike me as possible or real. Just, the hero is just too goody-goody. You might stop and think about that for a minute, but... I wouldn't attack them for it, whatever you do. <laughs> Never. We see too much of that these days. But, you know, the basic advice I would give to anyone who's starting out and wants to write is there's two basic advice. One, Ray Bradbury already said, the famous read, read, read. Read everything you can get your hands on. Read out of genre, particularly. You do not need to recycle the same ideas in the same bad prose. Okay? <laughs> but the other one is find skill. Hopefully, it's go to City College or something that you can support yourself by working part time with and write the rest of the time because it's very hard to get published these days. And if you're trying to work full time and write in the evenings, it's really horribly hard. So, the best thing to do is you know, get in some kind of healthcare or gardening or something that you can support yourself with part time while you learn to write because <laughs> it takes a while. It's a difficult craft to tell a story that involves readers, makes them feel like they're living in an imaginary world. It's harder even than writing about our own world. And you're, going just, to have to, you're not going to be an overnight sensation. And just the mechanics down of, of better. So there, there's a lot of jobs that we've talked about in other episodes of yeah. writing for journalism, writing for medium, writing for, you know, send off articles. Mm -hmm. Everything that gets you practice is good practice. Well, it and is except that it takes away from the impulse to write what you want to write. I would rather, I'd really rather see people do something totally different, you know, like there. Um, I know somebody who's a respiratory therapist. She works three days a week and makes huge money because she went to school to learn this skill. You know, it's a two-year college degree. Or like the caregivers that I had for Howard, you know, they have plenty of leisure time too when their client is asleep or whatever because – I've seen over and over people who then write journalism think that you write fiction the same way and you don't. <laughs> yeah. You just don't. Or academic things, too. You know, research is different than fiction. And I've seen people just burn themselves out on writing. If they spent, you know, three days wrestling with a report for some corporation and then, okay, finally it's Saturday. Oh, God, back to the computer. No, I don't think so. It's pretty much the reaction. You know, I feel like be, I'm right here. That's so where I am right now. Yeah, well. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and no. it's, 
and so I want to say as, as somebody who isn't making a living at it right now, the same thing that we're saying to each other at work, though, I want to say to others out there, be gentle to yourself right yes. now. This is, this is a very hard time. I mean, from when we first did an episode talking about creativity and podcasting in the time of cholera, writing right now and sitting and focusing and just doing a thing is harder than it used to be because there's all this hanging anxiety over everybody's head and worry. And is that smoke from the fire or is it asthma or is it allergies or do I have COVID? And that, yeah. those are real fears. And oh, yes. Quite be gentle with yourselves yeah. somehow. Yeah. Drink and drink coffee. Drink red coffee. Drink, <laughs> drink red more coffee. red coffee. Red, red coffee. coffee is the best coffee. Yes. All right. We will put links to um, Kit's stories and sites and social media on the website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We answer email. Kit, if somebody has a question for you, can we forward it uh, through to you and will you answer for them? Sure. Um, You have my email address, I think. I do indeed. To very fans, you can write in and ask questions now if you want to. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey-Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Ingberg. You can hear more from Michael Ingberg on minihatsmusic.com. Our podcast dancer is Eternally Jackal Designs, who enables you all to buy cool WDC swag. And hey... Thanks for listening.